I'm Alec Baldwin, and you are listening to Mission Daily, selected as Best of 2018 by Apple. Mission Daily is the number one podcast for accelerated learning. Here are your hosts, Chad Grills and Ian Faison. Welcome back to part two of our interview with Adam Fisher. Adam is a writer and historian, and his most recent book is Valley of Genius, the uncensored history of Silicon Valley. In the second part of our interview, Chad and Adam discussed the most important moments in Silicon Valley's history, the corrosive influences that have crept in in the past few decades, and what Adam foresees for the Valley's future. Enjoy. So in that period uh, between 84 and, and 95, you mentioned a number of examples there. Let's zero in on one, which is uh, Netscape and the formation of, of Netscape. How do you view that story now that you've dove deep with Mark Andreessen and Jim Barksdale and others? What were the most fascinating examples or uh, pieces of that story that you like to tell? Oh, my God. Well, Jim Clark is really the big hero of that story. because Jim Clark, sorry, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, Barksdale was the CEO, of course, but he was a hired gun that came in just because Jim Clark didn't want to, yeah, didn't want to run the company. He funded it. He got it started. He had the idea. But Jim Clark, so Netscape created what we know as the web. They took an academic toy that essentially you know, PhDs and their students could deal with and, you know, created a robust platform for commerce. You know, the the normal way of telling the story, of course, is, well, you know, this was all invented by the government, right? That we, we can thank the government and DARPA in particular for creating the internet. And hey, that is true. But uh, I, I, I kind of, you know, I kind of like something that's equally true and uh, Jim Clark's perspective, which is, well, yes, but, you know, what percentage of the value of the Internet was created by Netscape and what came after and what percentage of the value was created by the government? And it has right. to be something like 99999 <laughs> to one, you know, to, to 0.0001, right? I mean, and you're like, hmm, that's an interesting perspective, but more interesting than his like entrepreneurial capitalist fervor is the fact that Jim Clark, who shows up in the book early as one of these guys who was big in the personal or really workstation computer world. He, you know, was there at Xerox Park when Jobs was coming through and he was creating, he was basically putting um, the virtual reality algorithms onto a chip. So he kind of created virtual reality and that chip became the the GPU, the graph, graphical processing unit, is like a CPU of a computer that he created and then um, sold through a company called Silicon Graphics, which was the Google of its era, you know, the coolest company in the Valley and powered, you know, Pixar, uh, as well as all kinds of more academic things. And he made a fortune. He made a billion, you know, on that IPO. Uh, and he had a billion dollar IPO with that. And then he uh, 
he left and created Netscape in 95 and then created the next revolution in uh, the next industry that came out of Silicon Valley. So he was super important when Silicon Valley was creating computers and now more than super important when Silicon Valley went into this kind of cloud era, this web era. And he is essentially the only figure who's straddled that huge divide. Okay. Mm -hmm. Because there's a whole new crew coming in post 95. And I respect him for that. Plus like, you know, who else had, I think three billion dollar IPOs in a row as a founder. I don't think anybody. Yeah, that's uh, the track record is uh, incredible for sure. So he and, uh, is, you know, and no one really talks about him. It's all jobs, 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 or zuck, zuck, zuck. I mean, Jim Clark is like both of them combined and more in some ways. I think one of the major reasons why he gets left out a lot is there are plenty of quotes from Jim that are, if they're taken out of context, that he can seem very, very abrasive. And uh, but when I when I read them, I just see someone who's trying to get to the point very quickly. He's a I don't wonderful really... guy. I had he's he's one of the very few super geeky guys. Again, he did. We was very early on the VLSI very large scale integration chip kind of thing, literally banging out silicon. So he's a nerd at the highest order but he's also extremely you know just personable he's great to hang out with you mentioned in your answer there xerox park which is a research hub that spawned just a huge huge amount of wealth and one of the people in the book that i think had the most interesting thing to say about xerox park is alan k so for anyone who's familiar with silicon valley you're probably familiar with alan's work But here's Alan's quote, which at first glance is pretty harsh, but I think points to a shocking truth about business people versus technologists. So Alan says, business people should be shot. They always say, we are in business to make money. And I say, well, not really. You just want to make a few million or a billion. But the return from Park is about 35 trillion. Count those extra zeros and tell me what they are really doing. They are just trying to be comfortable. So Alan Kay is the guy behind the graphical user user interface, among many, many other things. And I think that quote there points to the ethos of the Valley, which isn't about acquiring wealth to be comfortable. It's about creating a huge amount of wealth that society at large can enjoy. And in recent years, that doesn't seem to be the pursuit of many Valley companies, but that is the inspiration for many of the people who who are here and who are working now. So could you talk a little bit about Alan and maybe Xerox Park? Alan Kay is my hero. Okay. It's Alan Kay, Brand, Jim Clark. But Alan, <laughs> you know, the book is called Valley of Genius. I'm not sure how many actual geniuses I encountered. I mean, people are very smart had the education exactly the right thing and the right kind of character to to go through the the spanking machine that is starting a company but alan is clearly a genius okay like you just you can just smell it the moment he opens his mouth it's just 
you know, everything he says is is a pearl of wisdom. It can just be unpacked almost endlessly. And he was there. He was not only at Xerox Park, he was at the Atari Research, you know, running Atari Research. Atari was bigger than Google, Facebook, Apple combined at one point, kind of. You know, he was running Apple, too, at the perfect time, too, running their kind of R&D. So he's been everywhere. He's a genius. And, you know, he's kind of treated as almost like a god um, by the other engineers that you talk to. I mean, the fact that I had interviewed Alan Kay got me a zillion other interviews because they're like, (laughs) yeah, I want to be in his company. So... I mean, what was Xerox Park? What did he do there? Is that is that the question? Or or anything that any of the backstory that you feel more people should know about his work or Xerox Park? Well, let's quickly talk about what Xerox Park is. Anybody who wants to be relevant in technology in general or Silicon Valley in particular needs to know the story of Xerox Park. Xerox Park was actually the R&D lab of Xerox, which is in Rochester, New York, and it was deliberately cited in Silicon Valley to be as far away from headquarters as possible because what they did was just say, hey, you know, we own the xerography, i.e. copier business, we're making a mint, we're just going to peel off some bills and put the smartest researchers we know all in a room together, and they're just going to create something for the office, whatever that is, guys. And what these guys did is they took computers, which at that time were punch code things, you know, no no keyboard and no screen or only primitive ones. They had output was a teletype, i.e., you know, a printer. The input was not a keyboard. That was that was considered wrong and wasteful to have a keyboard because the computer would be waiting for someone to press return and that would be a, a horrible waste of, of computing resources. So the input was punch cards. You couldn't even touch the machine unless you were kind of a PhD student or better. And they created at Xerox Park what we would recognize as the first personal computer. People can argue about you know, what should be the first personal computer. But Alan Kay argues that the computer that he spec'd out and created, the Alto, was the first personal computer. And indeed, everyone at Xerox Park had an Alto, and they all programmed for it. It had a keyboard. It had a screen. More than that, it had a bitmapped screen, so a fully graphical interface. And it basically looked like the computers we have today, just, you know, bigger because it it was a big box under everybody's Mm. desk. And so he created drag and drop, consolidated the the interface, you know, basically he he created the personal computer. And then he had a big plan for creating the thing he really wanted to create, which was well, he described it as a computer for children, but we would recognize it as um, iPad or uh, some kind of netbook, first real you know, portable computing device. So he was the visionary. And unlike most people who call themselves visionaries, he had the res- the respect of the technologists and the technologists built what he envisioned. And so literally, this is not a figurative thing, he'll, he'll, but literally 
all of, well, most all, <laughs> but all of Apple's ideas, I used to, Steve Jobs' ideas were Alan Kay's ideas. Steve Jobs right. just kind of commercialized them. Yeah, there's the famous conversation, I think, between basically Bill Gates is chastising Jobs when Jobs accuses Gates of taking something. Uh, and Gates is like, no, we were both breaking into Xerox Park together and taking all the ideas or something along those lines. Exactly. And then, you know, what's interesting in my book is Alan Kay talking about that process. And it's like, yep, that's what we're trying to get everybody to steal from Xerox because we knew Xerox wasn't going to get into the computer business. There were two kind of fat and happy in the copier business. So you, you know, when you really get into the granular kind of stories of how technology gets created, how it gets out of the lab, how it gets into consumers' labs, and ultimately how it changes our world and our culture, it really starts to get interesting. The other important thing about Alan Kay and others like him in the book is how utopian they were. They were clearly motivated to make the world a better place. Now, that phrase kind of sticks in my craw now because it's just been adopted by the the most cynical of the kind of MBA crowd that has kind of descended on Silicon Valley like a crowd of, you know, vultures. But and vultures is, pre is pretty kind. <laughs> just but, uh, just half joking. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, all the real wealth and all the biggest companies were, you know, come out of this kind of utopian strain of the valley. And that's that's one of the things I want to highlight, how kind of utopian the Valley was, not just in the 90s where, you know, we had Clinton as president, the United States was still on top, and the global, you know, the new world order, there was no wars, the stock market was booming, not just in utopian times, but all the way back to the late 60s when I start with Doug Engelbart you know, maybe the most utopian of all the utopians. And, and that's one of the keys. It's not just that pessimists tend not to get rich. It's that utopianism itself is a driver of change and, you know, it starts companies and makes things happen. And, and it's easy to be cynical about the place we've ended up with Theranos and these where the web is now, but and all the kind of problems that Silicon Valley has created or unearthed uh, with this idea of universal connectivity. But the only way out to a better future is for everybody, but Silicon Valley in particular, to rediscover the kind of utopianism that created Silicon Valley in the first place. Because if we don't, things could be bad. I couldn't agree more. And the example I always like to use of how utopianism isn't even something that people want to talk about these days is, you know, I'm from Maryland. And before my wife and I moved out here, we lived in Potomac, Maryland, which is very close to DC. And in conversations out there, if you're trying to talk about fiction books or science fiction or ideas to solve unemployment or prevent future wars from occurring. These are topics that 
will not only get you you know stared at or people will start thinking you're weird they will exclude you from conversations you just can't have those conversations i haven't found that you can have them very easily on the east coast whereas if you come out to the west coast these are conversations that are already happening and i think the permission and encouragement of dangerous conversations and dangerous ideas or utopian ideas however you want to define them it really it it does happen a lot here Adam, do you think that there are more or less utopian conversations going on in Silicon Valley now than uh, in previous years? I think there's less because I think, you know, Silicon Valley is in danger of being overwhelmed by people who did not grow up in the kind of utopian culture of the Northern California Bay Area. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the money has drawn out kind of the kind of worst instincts in in a lot of the people who come here. You know, I have I have friends who are in, you know, the engineering departments at Stanford and they, you know, they tell me stories about what student culture is like now and it's and the students should be the most utopian people and yet it seems not to be true at least if my sources are correct what do you think is kind of like eroding student culture or idealism is it inherited technological wealth because so inherited wealth typically corrupts people and it's very hard to become a great person if you're given a trust fund or something. So do you view modern day students in the Valley or young people as, you know, they're basically, they're inheriting a ton of different wealth and infrastructure from previous risk takers. Is that what is kind of corrupting idealism or what do you think it is? Well, I mean, I I do think that the people who are tapped into this kind of culture that is forward-looking, positive, you know, embracing of technological change and, and, uh, you know, motivated by larger human problems like, you know, let's build, uh, you know, let's try to solve war. Let's try to solve for homelessness. Let's try to, you know, make people happier. I think that those people will in the past, those people are the ones who've succeeded. And I think it will also be true in the future. But one of the things that's changed, besides this kind of piling on of kind of MBAs from Harvard or whatever, people who think they're going to get rich quick, is the fact that in the past, Silicon Valley has always had a boogeyman that was somewhere else, right? Because Mm -hmm. Silicon Valley until very recently is basically a backwater, okay? People don't quite understand that. It was a nice place, but it was kind of like, I don't know, Hawaii or something. It's like far away from everything and, and kind of inward looking and doing its own thing, right? And not relevant. But you know, what motivated the young people in Silicon Valley, you know, was and jobs, a perfect example of this in the beginning was like, let's take computing out of the hands of IBM, the evil IBM. We can't, you can't imagine. I mean, that's what Apple was about. It was mm-hmm. about down with the man. Like we're going to liberate the computer from this evil corporate war machine kind of thing. 
you know, didn't quite say that in the ads, but that's certainly what the engineers were thinking. Then again, it was the Microsoft. Let's kill Microsoft. How are we going to, you know, they essentially snuffed out Apple, which was kind of this utopian computing company in the favor of these like Wintel duopoly, you know, you had Dell on one side, basically Microsoft on the other, like snuffing out all competition, giving an inferior and expensive product to the masses and kind of claiming it was great and have it, you know, ha- it having no kind of taste is just a very corporate thing. And for a decade, it was like, how are we going to kill Microsoft? And oh, by the way, Jim Clark did it because in effect, the web was turned from a like a little academic toy for sharing physics papers into a kind of second operating system that now is essentially the first operating system mm-hmm. okay? and and then brought the center of power back to silicon valley so what is different now well we still have these kind of fairly ugly looking monopolistic companies in the form of Google and Facebook and arguably Apple. And, you know, the kind of intellectual energy among the young are focused on ways to break those monopolies and and kind of destroy them. That is what the blockchain is about. We could do a distributed Google. We could do a distributed Facebook with blockchain technology. Oh, and by the way, everybody's person, no one with this, this kind of new distributed architecture that we're groping towards of the promises that, you know, your information will be totally secure and no one, no one could kind of, there wouldn't be this kind of ambient spying that goes on now. But, you know, Google and Facebook are here in the Valley. So it's really the young versus the old. And that's a new dynamic. It's not an outsider. It's even the young realize it's, it's us. And so how that's going to play out, I don't know, but it, it is significantly different kind of archetypical structure. And I find it fascinating. It is really fascinating. And there's a sci-fi series called The Culture Series by Ian Banks, where the world or the the universe is kind of run by a corrupt, I think I'm pronouncing this right, geritocracy, geritocracy, where the society is just run by the people that are oldest, uh, the people who have survived the longest. And you, you see hints that modern young people in Silicon Valley are kind of, I mean, they're very aware of this, I would say. And I think that that is uh, a promising push and pull kind of new battle where, yeah, there needs to be some innovation. I think young people need to uh, have more voice and uh, preference in a lot of these big choices that are happening without them right now. So that's really exciting. And I want to, as we tie up the interview here, I want to focus on the uh, epilogue of the book. So it's called The Endless Frontier, The Future History of Silicon Valley. And in it, you... I have no idea how you were able to do this, but you basically weave in quotes and a conversational style dialogue with many, if not all of the people that you interviewed. Uh, it's, yeah, it's quite a few people are included here. When you think about the future of Silicon Valley, 
What do you think about what gives you the most hope? What do you wish for the future of Silicon Valley? I want the best parts of Silicon Valley to, to, to spread across the world and the ethos that was kind of created here to be adopted in various flavors all, all over the world. Because, that, you know, the future shouldn't be controlled by one small kind of parochial place. And I think that is happening. And, you know, we were talking about this this fight between the young and, and kind of the old or the kind of engineering cohorts in Silicon Valley over the, the future of really the internet. But the other thing is happening is that people are branching out into other kind of technological frontiers. You know, technology isn't just the cloud. It isn't just this network. It's an incredible thing that we've built this, the biggest machine in history by, you know, many orders of magnitude that basically one thing that basically touches half, half the world in a, every day in a r- real way. And that, you know, is slowly gaining something like an intelligence of its own. But, you know, there are other technological frontiers, you know, space travel, I didn't even get into it in the book, but biotech, modern biotech with Genentech was invented in Silicon Valley. And that Mm -hmm. is just starting. You know, Stuart Brand, who's been at the forefront of everything, who's basically on the first page of the book when it opens in 68, is co-founded a biological program called Revive and Restore. And he really thinks that with the help of some very smart people from MIT and elsewhere, that they can bring back the woolly mammoth, which was have in positive ecological consequences. So there are all these kind of the thing that Silicon Valley really invented was this kind of method of pushing forward and creating change through companies and venture funding etc. And that system is spilling out to every other kind of technological frontier and will remake almost uh, every, every field of en- enterprise that exists sooner or later. And the whole world will be run a lot more like Silicon Valley pretty soon, and it'll, and it'll push our technological development faster than it has been for the last 50, 100 years, for, for sure, I think. And I just wanted to show that and the enormous positivity and optimism and promise that has. I mean, if we're going to have 9 billion people on this planet, we're going to have to get a lot more efficient in kind of providing for all these people and everybody providing for each other. And that's, that is really the promise of technology. Absolutely. Adam, well said. Thanks so much for joining us today. This has been a blast. Where can people find you online and uh, where's the best place to look for you? Well, right now I'm, I'm most happy with Instagram, although I'm on most of the platforms. You know, look, the best, the, <laughs> the best social media platform, though, is, is email. Um, it's the one that isn't controlled by one monopolistic corporation. And uh, my real email address is in the book. And if you buy it and read it and want to talk to me, just shoot me an email. Awesome to hear from my readers. Adam, thanks so much. And for everyone listening, we will see you next time. 
Mission.org is a media company with a daily newsletter, network of podcasts, and brand studio designed to accelerate learning. Head to Mission.org to get award-winning podcasts like The Mission Daily, The Story, IT Visionaries, Education Trends, Marketing Trends, Future of Cities, and more. Mission Studios has worked with companies like Salesforce, Twilio, and Katera to create custom media channels that drive results. Make sure to subscribe to the Mission's daily newsletter at mission.org. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.